You are listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. Ephesians chapter 4, uh, we're going to begin um, here in just a minute and, and look back at chapter, verse 7. But I want to I ask you a question before, uh, before we jump in. When, when were you called to ministry? When did you experience uh, a call to ministry? And you may be saying to yourself, well, Michael, you're, you're a pastor. I presume that you have a call to ministry, but I'm not sure that I've felt uh, called uh, particularly uh, to ministry. Um, and you may feel like this is a trick question. Like, what are you talking about? I don't know that I have been called to ministry. Um, <clears throat> but the truth is, uh, and we see this in Ephesians 4, that every believer is a minister. Every follower of Christ is a minister of Christ. Um, and, and what God calls us to uh, and the, uh, the definition or understanding of the ministry of the church is that it doesn't belong to a select few of professional uh, ministers, but it actually belongs to every member of the church. Every member is a minister and the growth of the church depends upon every member of the church embracing their call to ministry. You see, you were called to ministry when you came to faith in Christ. Uh, when, when we come to faith in Christ, we enter into a relationship with him, freed from our sin uh, and, and given new life. And the new life that we're given is not only freedom from sin, but it's freedom to serve God. And in serving God, we serve others. And he puts us in the family of God, in the body of Christ. And he calls us to love one another. And he calls us to serve one another. And, and it's that call to service that is a foundational understanding of what it means to be a minister. Now, the word itself refers to a servant, to one who serves. The, the idea of, uh, of the ministry of the church and every believer being a minister is that all those who follow Christ are called to serve in the way of Christ. And, and so today I want us to, to look at Ephesians 4 because it gives us and introduces us to the imagery of the church as the body of Christ. Uh, this imagery of the body of Christ occurs in a few of Paul's letters, in Ephesians and Colossians, uh, but then also in Romans and 1 Corinthians. And next week, we're going to look at uh, spiritual gifts in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, which uh, kind of dig in more specifically as to how we work out our ministry in the church and how God has equipped us uh, to carry out our ministry in the church to one another and, and even to, towards others. But today, I want us to, to get a big picture vision uh, of this uh, broader call uh, to, to be ministers for the sake of the gospel and for the building up of the church, to understand that God has gifted the church so that we might grow as every member embraces their call to ministry. And, uh, and I want us to see three aspects in particular of the ministry of, of the church. The first is God's provision for our ministry. Um, looking at Ephesians 4, verse 7, I just want to go back a little bit uh, from what we read earlier. It says in verse 7, Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then verses 8 through 10 are going to, to talk about uh, the descending and ascending of Christ and how Christ has given gifts to his people um, and it's going to say that the one who descended, verse 10, is also the one who ascended far above all things to fill all things. And then in verse 11, it says, 
And then he gave. We, we see that he gifts every individual believer, and then it says he, get, he gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Pastors and teachers kind of being overlapping um, roles, and, and some even considering them almost as one role. Um, and those are given for the equipping of the saints. Here it is, for the work of ministry. Here in, in this beginning part of this passage, we see God's provision for our ministry. We see that God's provision for our ministry really is nothing less than the grace that comes to us through Christ. In particular, it puts emphasis on how Christ has descended in his incarnation and ascended in his exaltation after having come to earth and living a perfect life and dying a sacrificial death on the cross. He's raised from the dead and his resurrection isn't the last thing he does. It's his ascension as he ascends into heaven. And and it says that he, uh, being the resurrected and ascended Christ, sovereign over all things, to fill all things, to exercise authority over all things, he's given gifts. And particularly, we see how, by God's grace, every member is gifted for ministry. And this is what we'll, we'll dig in more next week in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, because here it just says that we've been gifted. In verses and chapters 12 of both Romans and 1 Corinthians, it goes into more detail about those gifts and the nature of those gifts. And so that's where we'll be next week. But here it says we've, we, we've been given grace uh, by God's grace. We've been gifted for the ministry that he's called us to. Uh, and this grace isn't uh, just speaking of grace that saves, but the same grace that saves also empowers us to serve. And so every member by God's grace has been gifted for ministry, but also verse, uh, verse 11 and 12 make clear that God, by his grace, has provided leaders to equip every member for the work of ministry. And now this, this also is somewhat interesting because verse 11 says that God gave uh, these uh, people as gifts, but that's what's, what's so unique about Ephesians 4 is that in the other places it talks about the gifts being acts of service, uh, whether it be speaking service or serving uh, gifts, uh, those kind of things. Uh, but here it talks about the gifts as people, that God has given particular people with particular roles to the church for the equipping of the entire church to do the work of the ministry. And, and the roles that are given here are, are kind of both foundational, like the apostles, the prophets, um, and, and then you almost see like a transitional type role with the evangelist and the, the teachers and then a, a local or settled role in the pastors who uh, are settled in the congregation, carrying on the work of teaching and even the work of evangelism, but not just themselves, but equipping the church uh, to do that work of the ministry. The, all of these roles, uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers are all aimed at one thing, and that's equipping the church to do the work of the ministry. God cares so much about his church being faithful to do the work he's given us that he's given us his grace to, to, to gift us uh, to do that work. And then he's given us leaders uh, to equip us for that work. And all the roles that he speaks of in verse 11 have to do with the proclamation of God's word. Uh, and, and time and time again, we've looked now at, at Matthew 16 and Jesus and his church. We've looked at Acts 2, a, a portrait of a devoted church, devoted uh, to gathering, devoted to God, devoted to one another. And in, in all of these passages, you'll note this, this kind of repeating refrain. And if you're like, Michael, I feel like you're being somewhat repetitive. It's because God's word is making this point time and time again, that the word of God is central to the people of God carrying out the work of God. 
the word of God, essential to the people of God carrying out the work of God. And apart from God's word being at the center of the church, then it's really us doing our best to try to figure out what God wants us to do. Now, there's some creative people and they can come up with some great ideas, but it's always going to fall short of sustaining and growing in the way that God intends apart from his word. And so God intends to gift every member to carry out the work of ministry by his grace, as well as to provide godly leaders to equip every member for the work of ministry. First Timothy 3, 1 through 7 and Titus 1, 5 through 9 lay out the qualifications of a pastor. Most fundamentally, they say that pastors are to be men of godly character. And, and honestly, the whole emphasis is upon them being godly. It's their character above all. And then the one skill, the one task that they're entrusted to do is to be able to teach. And, and then we see in 1 Timothy 5, 17, it talks about the, the elders, a synonymous word for pastor, overseer, elders, all those words referring to the same role. It says that they, those who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, particularly speaking of those who labor in preaching and teaching. That's foundational to the role of the pastor because God has given pastors in particular in this ongoing sense in the local church to equip the saints, all believers, for the work of ministry. And what you should expect of a church, what you should expect of anyone who steps into this pulpit, which is a music stand, um, but anyone who stands and declares God's word, that they would give you sound doctrine and that they would faithfully open up God's word for God's people so that we would be equipped to do God's work. That's, that's what we want to do every Sunday as we gather together. And it's that word, the preaching of God's word that doesn't just stay here. Uh, but to, to use a, uh, an image uh, from a, a book by Jonathan Lehman, uh, that the word of God preached on Sunday should reverberate throughout the life of the church. It, it, should, it should go and echo out into small groups and into conversations and into, uh, into encouragement and counsel and prayer. I'm not saying that you pick up all the points of the sermon, but that, the, that God's word so it, it dwells in us and is embodied by us known by us, loved by us, treasured by us, that it shapes all of our life together, all of our life together. And that's what, that's what God has given in order to ensure that we're able to do the work of ministry. And, and particularly verses 8 through 10, they can be somewhat of a mouthful. Honestly, if you look at it, it says, when he ascended on high, he took captives captive and he gave gifts to people, quoting Psalm 68. But what does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? Then the one who descended is also the one who ascended far above all, uh, all the heavens to fill all things. It's abundantly clear what this means, right? Um, the, 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 the passage is drawing from Psalm 68. Paul's quoting Psalm 68. And in some of your Bibles, you can see how it's offset and bold and kind of uh, set apart. It often does that to show you when it's quoting scripture from the Old Testament. Um, and it's quoting Psalm 68, which talks about how God uh, is, it talks about the triumph of the Lord, how he triumphs and gives gifts uh, to his people. Um, and, and here, uh, what Ephesians is saying, Paul is saying is Jesus is that. Jesus is the Lord who triumphs overall. He triumphed through his death and his resurrection and his ascension. 
And, and in Psalm 68, there's this emphasis on receiving gifts from people. Uh, but here, Paul puts the emphasis on giving gifts to people. And I think the best way to understand what Paul is maybe trying to emphasize is that just as God receives gifts from those he, um, those he captures, so to speak, which is the, the imagery of Psalm 68, he in turn gives the spoil, of you, uh, if you will, of his triumph to his people. They receive gifts from him. And in Acts 2, 33, it talks about how Jesus, when he rose from the dead, he received the promise of the Holy Spirit. And then what does the, the Holy Spirit do at Pentecost, like we looked at last week in Acts 2? Not only has Jesus received the promise of the Holy Spirit, according to Acts 2, 33, but the promised Holy Spirit has come to those who believe. He receives and he gives, and it's by means of the Spirit that he gifts the body for the work of ministry. And in here it's saying in verse 10 that Jesus does all of this to, f- to fill all things. Uh, the, the word to fill means uh, it uh, has the connotation of to control by exercise of sovereignty. So in other words, God's gracious provision for the ministry of the church is in part how God intends to accomplish his will in the world. We, we've said this a few times again that the, the bottom line is if you want to get in on what God is doing in the world, If you want to be about the most exciting thing that God's doing on planet Earth, it's be a part of a local church. And you may say, man, this local church doesn't look like much. You know, you guys seem nice. You know, you're not that big. The movie theater's nice, but that's kind of weird. The people are coming with popcorn. Where's our popcorn, you know? Or maybe you're like, I've been to to different churches that have this or have that. You guys did have donuts, so I'll give you props for that. You, you, You may be thinking on the outside, this doesn't look that exciting and like the most exciting thing that's happening on planet Earth. But Jesus has promised that he intends to accomplish his work through his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail over it. And that if we want to be a part of him fulfilling his will in all things, all we need to do is to be a part of his people that take expression in a local church. Yes, imperfectly, but seeking faithfully, seeking humbly to put on display the glory and the wisdom and the grace of God in everything that we do. What the world looks at and sees as weak and fragile, God may indeed look at and see as glorious and powerful. And I think that's true when he looks at his church, not because we got it all together, but because he has a plan for us and he's promised to make good on it. So what we, we, we can take away from this truth of God's provision for our ministry is that God's grace is sufficient to sustain and strengthen us to do the work of ministry. And I actually think this is the encouraging part to me because I don't know if you think about this. Do you think about being called to ministry? And you may, you may say, I didn't have that thought in my mind before uh, today that, that God's called me to ministry. And we, we, we both suffer from an influence of secularization in the church, but also from a professionalization uh, of church leadership in particular, that the, the work of the ministry is done by a few rather than those who are called to lead the church, being faithful to equip the church to do the work of ministry. And in all of that, when we think about God calling us, weak and feeble as we may be, and we may feel inadequate as we may feel. I think every believer I talk to, every leader of a church I talk to, every member of a church I talk to, including ours, when, I, when we talk about the ministry that God's calling us to, whether it be outreach or discipleship or uh, serving in any capacity, all of us feel some sense of, I don't know that I've got it in me. I don't feel particularly gifted to teach kids. 
I don't feel particularly gifted to, to help with this aspect of small group life, or I don't know, I've never done that before, so I'm not sure that I can take that responsibility. Or, you know, I, I don't know if I have time to make it work. We have all these different reasons that we feel inadequate, and some of them may very well um, be, uh, be legitimate in the sense that, that we may have to pause on taking something up, or we may have to uh, discern the best time to, to take on a responsibility. But underneath it, here's the encouragement. God's grace is sufficient for you. He will give you what you need to do the work that he's called you to do. You can trust him. You can say, yes, God, I want to serve you. Yes, God, I want to be a part of building up your church. Yes, God, I want to be a part of your mission. And I have no clue how I'm going to do it, but I'm trusting you. I think God would take that 10 out of 10 times over the person who says, I feel pretty good. I got this. I, I'm, I'm ready. Now, of course, if you're ready and you're trusting the Lord, I'll take, I'll take that too. <laughs> but not if you're trusting in yourself, right? God looks at the person. The, the person, Isaiah 66 says, the person that has God's gaze is not the person who's puffed up and confident in themselves, but the one who is lowly and who trembles at his word. That person, full of dependence on God, is the very person that God delights to use to do his work. His grace is sufficient for us. Jesus has risen from the dead. He is sovereign. He sits at the right hand. He promises to come again. His grace has been given to equip us to do the work of ministry. So if we feel overwhelmed at what God's called us to do, then we're in a good place because it's there in our inadequacy that we can meet God's power and strength. That's made perfect in our weakness so that Christ would be magnified in all that we do. And that's good news, that God's grace is sufficient for us. It's much better than guilt-driven ministry that says, well, you know, we, you, know you, we need to do, you need to do this because, I mean, look at everybody else. They're already doing these things, so we're calling on you to do this. It's better than performance-based ministry, which says, uh, you know, if anything's going to happen, you're going to have to do it. I'm going to have to do it. Grace-saturated ministry says, I am who I am by the grace of God. God's grace is progressively, if not sometimes slowly, changing me into who he wants me to be so that he can do what he wants to do through me. That's the kind of ministry that God's calling us to. He's provided everything we need to do the work of ministry, empowered us by his grace, and he intends to equip us through faithful pastors in his local church. God's provision for our ministry is nothing less than the grace that comes through Christ, risen from the dead. But we also see the goal that he has for our ministry. We're called to, to do this work of the ministry. And it says in verse 12, equipping the saints. That's a term that the Bible uses to refer to all Christians. It's the word holy. It's not referring to some Christians who are of a particular stature. It's a true statement of every Christian who's trusted in Jesus. They're set apart by God. They're holy. Uh, and he's saying all believers are to be equipped to do the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. There's this emphasis upon growing up into maturity, to building up the body of Christ. The, the goal of our ministry is that all of us would be in, in, uh, involved in the work of our ministry, which is ultimately, as I said earlier, the work of the ministry is being set apart to serve God by serving others, both in the church 
and in the world. And the goal of that ministry that God has given to us in a word is maturity. What God calls us to is, is maturity. And this is something that we are to attain. It's something we work towards. It's, it's not merely something we pursue individually. It's something we, we pursue collectively. I know it's at the beginning of the semester, so maybe the scars of group work uh, last year uh, have kind of faded away. But uh, I, I like to think sometimes uh, maybe in your workplace, you, you have group work that you have to do, teamwork that you have to do. Um, and and I, I remember in, in college, I hated group projects. Um, in part because there's always usually you, um, or if you're honest, maybe you're the one that's uh, the heavyweight on the team. But there's usually one or two people that carry all the weight. And then there's maybe two or three others that are on the team that you're just constantly trying to bring along with you, you know. And you're like, I just wish I could do it on my own. Uh, I, just, I just wish I could go about pursuing it without them. I'd have a better finished product, we, we think to ourselves. And I'm not, I don't know the best way to solve uh, the group work problem for you on campus or at work, but in the church, uh, here's, here's the truth. We can't go it alone. It's not merely something we pursue alone. It's something we pursue together. Something that we pursue together. God's calling us to attain, to work towards this together. And the maturity is both maturity in what we believe as well as maturity in how we live Maturity in what we believe that we're to attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Here, faith is used not in the sense of our trusting in God, but in the sense of the body of what we believe. Uh, the faith uh, that's once delivered to the saints, as Jude uh, describes it in, uh, in, at the end of the New Testament. It's, it's speaking of the collective body of what we believe. In our equip class, Chris was talking about the two equip classes. There's really three core equip classes that we, we want to be foundational uh, to, our, uh, to our discipleship and our equip effort. Uh, the first is Christian story, understanding the storyline of the scriptures. We've done that on Sunday morning uh, in past semesters. Uh, this next one that we'll be using a book called Habits of Grace is on Christian formation, understanding how we grow in Christ. The process of sanctification is a process of dependence on God and active work and obedience and dependence through the, through the means of grace, through the spiritual disciplines, through reading scripture, through prayer, through community and fellowship, through mission, through, uh, through the practicing of these disciplines, we, uh, we, we grow in Christ. That's how he intends to form us, to shape us into his image. And then lastly is Christian uh, belief, looking at the body of belief, our, our faith, uh, the, the kind of core doctrines of the faith, if you will. And so here we see that emphasis that we're to be united. Uh, before, this is the maturity that's described as the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And it's interesting that the, the faith isn't just a body uh, of information to be uh, received, but it's this knowledge of the Son of God, that it's a personal knowledge, that it's a, a not only knowing it intellectually, but uh, holding on to it and being in relationship to the Son of God. And so this is contrasted in verse 14. If you look, we're to attain to this maturity, the unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, uh, growing into maturity with the stature measured by Christ's fullness. fullness. And then we will no longer be little children, tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. It's easy to be deceived. We can deceive ourselves by our own sinful desires leading us astray, and we can be deceived by false teaching. 
And, and the contrast here is between being a child that's thrown about by every wind of teaching and, and being an adult, if you will, this is Christian adulting, if you will, growing into maturity so that we are grounded in what we believe. And it's an interesting statement here. I think well, I've been trying to kind of pause and, and try to address some different topics as it relates to the church uh, each week. And, and this one is one that kind of raises the question of if we're to have this unity of the faith, which is, is implied the shared belief amongst all believers. Um, I don't know if you noticed that there are a lot of churches and a lot of different denominations. So why are there so many churches and so many different denominations? Why are we right and there are all the other ones wrong, right? Like that's, that's the question. Uh, that's a joke. Um, <clears throat> the, 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 the question that arises many times as people look at Jesus's plan for his church and building his church and the gates of hell not prevailing against it and uh, this picture of a devoted church, devoted to gathering, devoted to God, devoted to one another. Here, a church that's being equipped by pastors to do the work of ministry, this unity in the faith. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 talks all about this unity, one faith, one baptism, one Lord, uh, all these things. That, and we, we wonder why are there so many churches, one, and, and then denominations? And I appreciated uh, the way that uh, an author, Garrett Kell, who's also a pastor in the D.C. area, broke it down. Um, and it's helpful just to consider, one, is that a necessity? We see this even in the church, that when a group of believers is large in a particular city, they break up into many churches, into many local churches because they can't all meet together. And, and by implication, the call of the church to practice uh, fellowship and sharing of life together and practicing the one another's of Scripture on some level require us to, to be close enough to know people, uh, to have relationships with people. We also see it's out of necessity when there are language barriers. Those language barriers can be overcome. There are some churches that have um, bilingual services with translation available. Some do it in an upfront way. I've attended churches that have translation of the service into various languages through, uh, through inner ear uh, kind of devices that, that can be used in service. But often there's a real value in worshiping in one's heart language, and that can be out of necessity that there are different churches. Now, when it comes to uh, not only churches, but denominations, the primary reason is, is because there are doctrinal differences. And most of these doctrinal differences are, if you kind of think about it, are second level issues. Um, the first level issues are, are kind of Issues related to the Trinity, uh, issues related to the authority of Scripture, issues related to the deity of Christ, the understanding of his full divinity and his full humanity, understanding that salvation is by grace through faith alone, that we can't save ourselves, but we, we are dependent on God's grace and respond to his initiative and, uh, and, and kind of foundational elements uh, related to, uh, to, to the Trinity, to who Jesus is, to the authority of the Scriptures. But on second level issues, uh, we see that most most uh, denominations divide because of these issues, issues like baptism, whether baptism is for infants or adults, for believers or, or for, for the children of those who are believers, uh, or if somehow that baptism is, is kind of washing away original sin and necessary for an infant at a certain age to, to be baptized. Uh, the Lord's Supper, uh, how the Lord's Supper is practiced, what, what's believed about the particular uh, substance that we, we partake in, the, the way the church is structured, its leadership, church government. Uh, this is what defines the difference between uh, Baptist and Methodist and Presbyterian. There, um, there are Baptism and Lord's Supper are big ones, but also church government, how they're structured. Are they congregational? 
uh, and that the congregation has a role in the life of the church and they're led by pastors or is it kind of a, a group outside the church that helps make decisions uh, over the church is an issue of church government, issues related to God's grace, whether we are, uh, as we, we, would, we would believe that God's grace, once we are saved, we are always saved. And we are saved by uh, the initiative of God's sovereign grace and pursuing us through Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, <clears throat> issues related to end times sometimes can be a reason that churches, uh, we have different churches or different denominations, the use of spiritual gifts which gifts, the sign gifts, speaking in tongues, these kind of issues define uh, the difference between a charismatic uh, denomination and, and one who isn't maybe overtly described as charismatic. Some are even des described as cessationists, believing that all those gifts uh, have ceased. Philosophy of ministry, how one does ministry. All of these things can result in different churches or different denominations. And we may look at them and say, well, should they? Should they not? Uh, and, and that's an important uh, conversation. The other, the other reason there are different churches is often personal preferences. You, you like certain things. You like a certain culture in the church, certain style, uh, whether it be music or preaching, expression of the worship of the church. Often related to the philosophy of ministry, personal preferences come in there. And that's natural if you're looking for a church. Those personal preferences are going to play a role. It's important for us, especially once uh, we are part of a church, to, to not allow our preferences uh, to, to lead us at the expense of truth. We don't want to do that. We don't want to say, well, I like this. I don't, I'm not sure it's true, but I like this. So we don't want our preferences to be at the expense of truth, but nor do we want our preferences to be an excuse not to practice Christ-like character towards one another. Sometimes we can just allow preference to give us an out. Uh, from from loving and bearing with one another, uh, and and so we have to we have to no doubt acknowledge personal preferences shape, especially when we're picking a church, uh, but also to understand that God calls us not to allow our personal preferences to to drive our life in the church and our commitment to the church, and then and then ultimately sinful splits can result in different churches, and some of you may have been a part of some of those experiences you saw. Uh, some some sin from uh, some people or a group of people or a pastor who sinned and didn't repent properly and then took a group of people away uh, from the church. It's a, it's a sad thing. It's a reality uh, that we don't just sweep under the rug, but we can look at it and say, that's not, that's not of Christ. Uh, when those things happen, and some of those things can be difficult and messy, uh, but ultimately uh, that can be behind some um, uh, particularly when there are different different churches, uh, when you see uh, one church that birthed out of another church, but not in the sense of uh, willingly, uh, but because of, of that type of division. But here's, here's the key in all of this that I think is essential. As we recognize there are different churches out of necessity, number one, and then practically as we get on the ground, some of these doctrinal convictions are going to lead us to, to do church differently. The, the heart and the spirit that we must have is to be clear on our convictions but wherever the gospel, uh, the truth of the gospel is upheld, whatever church or denomination, if they're faithful to the gospel, then we maintain a humble, charitable, and kingdom-oriented mindset towards other churches and denominations. So the joke I made at the beginning is not the spirit that we, we do, why we're right and everyone else is wrong. We can, we can dive into our convictions, which is essential, and ultimately our convictions are going to lead us to different places. And we can trust that God is going to help us one day come to a full unity uh, of the faith and understanding of the knowledge of the Son of God. But as we await, all we can do as his believers is seek to be clear on our convictions with a clear conscience. And then where the gospel is upheld, maintain a humble, charitable, kingdom-oriented mindset towards other churches 
and denominations. So we're, we're to have this goal of maturity defined by maturity in what we believe. But secondly, it's a maturity in how we live, that we're to grow up. And the, the language it uses is, to, is similar to Ephesians 2, where it talks about we've been saved into one new man, this new humanity, if you will, uh, that we're to, to grow up into maturity, which is defined by Christ's likeness. And in fact, the, the focus on Jesus in these two verses is interesting. You notice it says, until we all reach the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, and grow into maturity with the stature measured by Christ's fullness. So Jesus is both the object of what we believe, the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, and Jesus is the standard for how we live, that we're to grow up into the stature of the fullness of Christ. And what all of this is saying is that what God intends in the church is yes for us to, to see the gospel spread and to see people reached, but at a, a foundational commitment level for what ministry in the church means is that God intends for our life together in the local church to be a primary essential means and context in which he accomplishes his work in us to shape our right understanding of what we believe and to shape the way we live our lives that he would be the, uh, the object of what we believe, that we would continually grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and he would be the standard of how we live, that the measure of our lives, the measure of the way we treat others, the measure of how we, how we uh, spend our days and think and, and speak and act is Christ, that we are growing up. And it speaks of Christ as the head. We're to grow up into Christ. If we go on in verse 15, speaking the truth in love, let us grow up in every way into him who is the head. He is our authority and our standard as the head of the church. And from him, the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for the building up of itself by love when each part is properly working. So he intends to transform us to reflect the character of Christ. That means the solid sermons and uh, the great small group discussions but it also means the hard relationships, the difficult conversations, the time when you have to seek forgiveness or when you have to extend forgiveness. It means that the first sign of trouble isn't the time that we retreat, but is the moment that we press in. It means that the questions we have, we lean into God's word. We lean into community to grow through those things. He wants us to grow in what we believe and how we live. And it's not like you can, if you think about it, the, the, the growth of the, of the Christian life that God intends for us. It's not like you can get on an elevator, you know, on one floor and then you hit it. And then, you know, within a minute, you're like 15 floors up. And you're like, man, it was great. I didn't do anything. I just got there. No, you got to take the steps to the 15th floor in the Christian life. It's a process of growth. Now, sometimes it may feel like God puts you on the escalator and you go a lot quicker than you used to. And then other times you feel like, you know, if you've ever been to the airport and it's like sometimes you want to get somewhere and you're like, I think I got to go down and then the train and then go up and then back down to the, you know, you got to go a few different levels sometimes to get where you're going. Sometimes it feels like that. I'm like going this way and then all of a sudden it's this way. And but but God's at work in all of that and the up and the down and the difficult and in the joyous to, to accomplish his work to make us more like Christ. That's good news that 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 God's goal is for our maturity and what we believe in and how we live, but he intends to use the church to help us uh, become who he wants us to be, not merely as a personal realization, an individual realization of, of what God wants us to be, but a collective image of the body 
that God intends to put on display in the world. And then finally, uh, we see God's design for our ministry. His design for our, uh, our ministry is that all believers do the work of ministry so that the church might be built up. <clears throat> and it says here uh, that in verse 15, we're to speak the truth in love, growing up in every way into him who is the head. And then it says, verse 16, at the end there, it says, when each part is working properly, the church grows as it intends. So God's design for our ministry, as we said, is for every member uh, to, to be a minister, every member to be committed to the work of ministry. And, and the, the mindset of, of there being a select few who do all the work and everybody else watches short circuits God's design for our growth. He intends to use all of us, to use every believer to build up the church. So this, this means this, we cannot, we will not be a church that's enamored with the gifts of a few doing the work of ministry, but instead we'll be a people enamored with grace so that all of us will be equipped to do the work of ministry. We can't just say, wow, look at those few who do the work of ministry. We must look at all of us and understand that God's grace has been given to us so that we might all do that work. And it's foundationally why we can't be consumers in the church, but we must be servants. I'm not here with a list of all the things you can do today. Uh, we, we seek to, to model a ministry that's, sustain, that's a sustainable sacrifice. Every, every ministry is going to call you to sacrifice, but we want it to be sustainable. We don't believe people are machines. We, we trust that God has brought the right people, and at the right time, we'll use their gifts to build up the church. But, but here we, we have to understand that God's calling us all to do this work of the ministry. But the question that kind of is left hanging here, that you'd like to be nice if you told me this, what exactly does that mean? What exactly does it look like for us to do the work of ministry? Here are the two essentials for our work of ministry. Truth and in love. Truth and love. I just want you to look at these these verses, you'll see verses 15, 16, 20 through 21, where to speak the truth in love. In verse 16, it says, when each part is working properly, the body grows itself up in love. In verse 20, 20 through 21, it says that when we learned Christ and we heard the gospel, it defines the gospel as the truth that is in Jesus. In verse 4, uh, 24, it doesn't just talk about what we believe, but it talks about how we live as, as our life being defined by likeness to God in righteousness and purity of the truth. Verse 25, in case you didn't get it, in verse 15, Paul says again, therefore put away lying, speak the truth. But notice why we speak the truth, each to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. We belong to each other in the body of Christ. We are all parts of the body, so we ought to speak the truth. And then verse 32, be imitators of God, or this is actually verse uh, chapter, chapter 5, verse uh, 2, 1 and 2. Be imitators of God as dearly beloved children and walk in love. Speak the truth in love and walk in love. And in fact, we could say it this way, speak the truth in love and live out the truth in love. To speak the truth in love means that the, the words we speak, the contents of our word reflect Christ and his gospel. That's the standard for the ministry we do, the vocal ministry that we have with one another. And then that in love means the manner in which we use our words must reflect Christ. But we aren't just a people who go about speaking the truth in love. We go about living out the truth in love. That means that the testimony of our lives is marked by obedience to Christ and our new identity in Christ because we've been uh, put on this new self that's to be defined by uh, walking in righteousness and purity of the truth. And then the manner in which we treat others must reflect how Christ has treated us. 
Do you notice both at the end of chapter 4, verse 32, and at the beginning of chapter 5, verses 1 through 2? You want to know why you should be kind and compassionate to one another? Because God forgave you of your sins. You want to know why you should walk in love towards one another? Because just think for a moment about how God treated you. He gave himself up for you because he loved you as a sacrificial and a fragrant offering to God. I've quoted both of these quotes before, but it just speaks to the essential nature of truth and love going together. John Stott said, truth becomes hard if not softened by love and love becomes soft if not strengthened by truth. Tim Keller said that love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but it keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. I'm willing to say, I think today that the reason that we struggle to do the work of ministry to one another is because we struggle both to speak the truth in love and live out the truth in love. Rather than community being driven by mutual ministry, mutual ministry of truth and love together, truth is replaced by advice and opinions and preferences. Love is replaced with impatience and pride and selfishness and bitterness. Why do you think Paul spends so much time talking about bitterness and forgiveness and patience and long-suffering in the church when he talks about the church? Because it's so needed for us to be faithful to the work that God has called us to do. Ephesians 4, 1 through 2 says that we're to live out our calling with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Ephesians 4, 31, let all bitterness, anger, wrath, shouting, slander be removed from you, along with all malice. Be kind and compassionate, forgiving one another. Walk in love as Christ loved you and gave himself for you. The love, the love flows out of the truth of the gospel. And then when we love others and walk in love, we, we put on display the truth of the gospel. The gospel that empowers that love, and it's love that displays that gospel. And when you think about what it says concerning Christ, it says if every member is to be a minister and we're to be defined by truth and love, think about the opposite. If every member is a consumer, then the church will be defined by preference and convenience. Preference will devalue truth and convenience will only love selectively. If every member is just a casual spectator of the pastoral staff, then church will be defined by advice and comfort. Here's what I think you should do to make things better. And I like it as long as it makes me comfortable. But when we understand that every member is a minister, we'll be a church marked by truth and love. And I just, I just reflected on what this means. Here's my application of what that means to us. A friend shares a burden with you. Don't give them advice. Seek to share with them how your faith in Jesus has helped you work through hard things in your life. Your hard thing may not be the same thing as their hard thing. Don't try to match it. Just try to share what God's done in your life. Someone asks you about your weekend, don't just tell them about the weather. Share with them what you're talking about at church or in your small group. You see one struggling or seeming discouraged, seemingly distant, reach out to them, encourage them with the hope that's found in Christ. Just call somebody. You don't have to have a reason. Call somebody and share something with them. Tell them how you're praying for them. Not only that you're praying, but how you're praying. Meet with someone over the course of a month or a few months to read through a book of the Bible together or talk about something together. When tensions arise in a relationship in the church, don't run from it, gloss it over, approach, instead approach the person with humility, a desire to reconcile. Treat them as God and Christ treated you. When you've been wounded by someone, don't wall up against them, but apply the gospel to your own heart and then seek to extend forgiveness to others. 
when preferences or opinions differ. There's all kinds of topics that we might differ on. When that happens, instead of uh, being quick to dismiss and characterize, instead let's be quick to understand, slow to accuse, whether with our words or in our thoughts, which may actually be more dangerous. And, and when we feel distant from someone, don't settle down in resentment, but draw close in compassion. When we're struggling with sin, open up your life. Allow other people to speak in. Don't brush it off and think it's not a big deal. Sin always grows in isolation. Welcome others in so that you can have the light of the gospel and the light of community. Remind others in their sin of their need for God's grace and the sufficiency of God's grace. Don't be surprised when someone shares sin with you. Remind them that Jesus paid for that sin on the cross and that he's given us the power to walk in obedience. I think time and time again, as I think about what God wants to do through the ministry of the church is to cultivate community. We say this at TCC, that community is cultivated, not found. If you experience community, it's not because you just stumbled upon an awesome group of people. It's because that group of people is seeking to cultivate community. They're seeking to do ministry defined by truth and love. That's what God's calling us to. Every member a minister. And the ministry he's calling us to is a ministry of truth and love. One without the other won't suffice. Truth without love will be hard. Love without truth will be soft. But God's calling us to speak the truth in love and to live out the truth in love. And when we do that, over the long haul, through the ups and downs, through the trials, through the difficulties, through the expected and the unexpected, that's how God intends to build his church. That's what I pray God does at TCC. And I pray that, uh, that as we hear that good news of the gospel, that we first respond to him and receiving what he's done for us, and then we embrace the call to do the work of ministry. That's for all of us. Let's pray.